Well, Rob, our audition or our plea to the WSL to become a commentating team at some point is in the vault there, isn't it? We, uh, we pretty much at one point asked Sam Bleakley to to endorse us as a, as a commentary <laughs> team. Obviously, we're not going to go anywhere near his, his longboard in commentating empire, but uh, at some point, I reckon... We're going to be uh, we're going to be calling out some uh, some three to the beach shredder in one foot slop somewhere in northern Europe. Hopefully, let's hope so. Well, it started off as subtle hints, ended in overt. Please take yeah. it on. Something. We can do football and cricket too. We'll go on a trip. We'll do anything. Yeah, it was, yeah. It, but it was of course uh, with regards to Sam's uh, travel writing and filmmaking that we we talked to him today, and it was a really enlightening um, and inspiring interview. I think, hearing about the motivations behind Sam's travel and behind the films that he makes. And it was, again, incredibly interesting hearing about how he likes to give a voice to the people and the places that he documents. Absolutely, yeah. Let's have a listen. Today we're going to hear from one of surfing's great scribes. In the water, behind the keyboard, the mic, or in the editing studio, Sam Bleakley's career has added considerably to surfing's canon. With his latest project having been taken up by the WSL, Sam's travels are now streaming to a truly international audience. He's here today to chat trips, writing, and general philosophy with the Crest team. And we'll hear more from Sam shortly. But first, to my left... A man so bitter at the thought of me enjoying French waves, he organised a podcast recording on the best morning of the week for surf. It's Tom Anderson. Yeah, I was checking the charts very carefully, actually. To my right, uh, the man whose attempts to impersonate his favourite surfer, albeit through the medium of French cuisine, was a roaring success in the campsites of Cabreton. The Gilmore Baguette featured a smooth top and a hard, drawn-out bottom turn, but <laughs> unlike its inspiration was stale by midday. It's Rob Webster Blythe. Very good. Very so good. Uh, what happens here, Sam, right, is Rob and I are in a bit of a competition. Uh, it's currently 3-2 to Rob, and the guest is supposed to decide who's, uh, whose intro they thought was uh, was superior. Any thoughts? Oh, Tom, I'd have to give you the edge on that. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, this is Tom. I, I completely agree. <laughs> the Gilmore <laughs> Brilliant. I've, I've stitched him up with his one as well, haven't I? Um. Very nice. As you heard there anyway, uh, listeners, Sam is one of those surfers who has walked a wide range of paths. Competitor, free surfer, traveller, academic, writer, commentator, and now movie maker. This is someone who has crammed a lot into his career so far. I can't remember which of these pursuits led to my first meeting him, but I've seen him in several of these guises and can confirm he's looked comfortable in them all. I'm not sure how many people can profess to having been a European surfing champ and a Cambridge graduate, but here is proof that it can be done, and pretty much simultaneously. A competitive longboarder on the then ASP World Tour in the 90s, right the way through to the advent of the WSL, for whom he now commentates, Sam was always one of those riders who had strings to his bow, so to say. Travel writing being one of the standouts, although I would say that. Several early publications explored some of the world's less trodden surf paths before his hit title, Mindfulness and Surfing, Reflections for Cold Water Souls, followed by Mindful Thoughts for Surfing, and then editing with Nick Zanella, the historical surf tale, Children of the Tide, 
emerged as real markers that this was an author who could move his quill to new genres and ideas with great versatility. A PhD in surf travel writing complemented an ongoing thirst for adventure, which is where Sam's latest project comes in. Brilliant Corners, a series of video travelogues, is now available to stream through WSL Studios, giving him an opportunity to further spread that lovely narrator voice with its sensitive view of the world and eye for the sublime. And that's got to be the starting point then for our discussion. The most recent instalment of Brilliant Corners to be released to WSL Studios is Senegal, and it includes an important piece of literary. Is that the right word? Homage to that original great journey of Bruce Brown and company in the endless summer. You surfed that spot at Ungor Island, the one from the original movie. What was that like? Did it feel like you were standing on the, the shoulders of giants? Yes, it, it is an important contribution to surf culture, the endless summer. So I think that it's, it's easy to over-romanticize that kind of, those kind of works. But like any youngster growing up who was interested in bigger boards, of course, the endless summer was a big starting point for me to not only appreciate you know, what we were trying to do in Cornwall, but just understand a little bit about the world. So it was a, it was a lovely opportunity with the Senegal film to, to kind of cross-reference what Mike Hinson and Robert August and Bruce Brown did in the mid sixties with what was happening now with a, with a kind of thriving local surf culture. And I think the bigger picture is that you go to Senegal now and there's um, tens of red hot young Senegalese surfers. And that's really exciting. It took a long time. You know, you would have liked to have thought that culturally and economically Senegal could have been producing uh, red hot surfers a little bit earlier, but certainly now, as a visitor, you go there and, and you know, there's potential for some of those surfers to become world tour competitors. So, yeah, that was a, that was a lovely kind of link between Endless Summer and, and now with that brilliant Corners film. I was going to ask you about that. So perhaps more so than any of the other destinations in the latest series. So India, Madagascar, Papua New Guinea. Did you, did you find that Senegal had perhaps a higher standard of of surfing going on there yeah 100 percent. senegal is definitely up there with morocco as probably one of the african countries that's got you know that is getting closer to south africa in standard of local surfing and Ghana's also somewhere that's got a, a strong scene ivory coast nigeria have got big emerging scenes but i would say that if you were to kind of do a league table of the quality of african surf communities Morocco probably still above Senegal. I mean, I might kind of raise a little bit of rivalry there if, um, mm. if, if Senegalese and Moroccan surfers hear this, but that's exciting. South Africa at the top, Morocco second, Senegal third. Um, I'd put Ghana there in fourth at the moment. So you need the, these countries, they need, um, they, they, they need the platforms, the kind of evolving surf industry. But I think that what I like to advocate is that young talented surfers don't necessarily need to follow the path of indonesians hawaiians australians europeans they can forge their own way of successfully using surfing in their careers and it doesn't necessarily mean just because you didn't get on the world tour or the challenger series you're not a, a great shortboarder i think that as surf communities evolve we need to kind of find you know new ways of empowering mm. local scenes and allowing them to kind of showcase how good they are with, with their own kind of surf festivals and carnivals and exhibitions. I'm curious as to why Senegal, in, in your eyes, has a, a kind of higher standard of surfing. I've 
I've seen that the ISA um, do those scholarships, don't they? They give, I'm not quite sure how they work, but I think they uh, enable people to buy equipment and to travel perhaps for contests. And I've seen at least one surfer uh, from Senegal receive one of those scholarships. Does that play any part into it? Why Why Senegal um, over Ghana, as you mentioned there? Why, why is that um, surf community kind of thriving? I think the wave quality, consistency in wave quality is the start point. And also fishing communities definitely lend themselves well to creating good surfers because these kids might have grown up with the real awareness of waves, currents, tides, seasons. and But also you do need some level of of economic stability and development to allow you know people to have the time to kind of you know perhaps diversify from traditional kind of career paths and spend enough time surfing to make a success of it but i think that the big drive is is consistency and wave quality and i think senegal has got that it's got a huge variety of waves and it's extremely consistent and it's got that alchemy of the inspiration from from expats and visiting surfers who have been kind of trickling through since the 1980s and certainly by the 90s you would you know young kids would see good quality surfers and by the the early 2000s you've now got a couple of role models particularly a, a guy called Omar Say who was a rip curl sponsored rider and Senegal's first kind of sponsored surfer once somebody from a community you know shows and you know acts as a role model then it's it's easy to really relate to that and the next step would be um, some progress from the young women and girls in Senegal and seeing maybe um, a kind of big role model to kind of get more of the of the girls surfing in Senegal. And was um, did, did you Peter from Senegal originally? You know, the Euro- he was European champion, I think, wasn't he, in 93? Was he was he Senegalese? I'm not sure, actually, Tom, but really? I do remember Didier. But obviously, he probably surf. Did he surf for France? But he, he maybe for France. Yeah, I see Didier Senegal. on the beach here all the time, coaching the yeah. the, the young up and coming French rippers. And obviously, it was a French colony, so the the the, the links, bet- yes. historical links between France and Senegal are close. And and the major over the decades, the majority of travelling surfers going to Senegal have been French surfers. And I I think it's probably fair to say, Sam, you said um, about these the people in Senegal being exposed to good surfing and you took along an interesting crew as well including Ireland's favorite daughter Iski Britain so yeah what a great team part yeah. there in inspiring up-and-comers yeah well Iski's a, a a good friend who who I have traveled with before so in the second season of Brilliant Corners I did we traveled to Mauritania together that was with um also with Mike Lay and that was filmed by Jack Johns a great boogie boarder and surfer from the west country of Cornwall I know and, yeah absolute legend and a great cameraman and, and uh, filmmaker and Iski is somebody who has always inspired me she's uh, a great surfer from a real lineage one of them of the great families of Irish surfing and with the making of the brilliant corners films I, I don't actually make them on a very big budget so it's not as if I can just pick and choose and bring people and fund everything I have to be very careful about you know, working to a really small budget and making something that I feel is going to be unique and have an edge. And I really went out of my way to, you know, to kind of talk to Iski about the Senegal project. And she was really excited about it. And I thought that it was a beautiful bridge between Iski being able to meet this young woman called Ita. And, and, and I felt like that 
that that link there was 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 only Eski could could be the role model for Ita because this is this it's older um high quality Irish surfer who who represents somebody who doesn't put her eggs all in one basket it's not just surfing for Eski she she works as an academic and she does a lot of work about um, empowerment for women's communities through access to the water and the sea and surfing and she knows a lot about fishing communities and Eski was a fantastic person on that project as was Adrian Toyan from who's born in Lebanon grew up in Reunion now lives in Biarritz just a really uh, electric surfer someone who just you just you, you know those types of surfers that they just put your hair on end when you see them take off because you know something exciting is going to happen they they've got that speed and that he's presence. got a very languid style as well hasn't he adrian yeah rob machado he reminds me of a kind of rob machado in the 90s that kind of mm. somebody who could look really relaxed and then come alive when the wave demanded but he had a relationship with senegal because he traveled there 12 years earlier um, i think i probably used the phrase 10 years in the film just for kind of the the kind of ease of talking about it but uh, that was a nice kind of balance. You write these shows, Sam, and uh, they were born partly from book projects in the first place. You know, the, the brilliant corners shares the name with one of your early travel titles. So I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your sort of writing journey. I suppose you started really with travelogue. Um, and I suppose there's a philosophical element to those early books that you wrote. And then moving from there into sort of this idea we of sort of writing visually you know you're you're curating or or guiding the the music uh the visuals that that kind of sensory awareness that you can have when actually writing a television program instead of just something you know words that are going to come off the page how has your approach to writing changed across sort of you know the book projects through to um script writing yeah the, the films are definitely kind of led by my interest as a travel writer and certainly informed by that style and i haven't actually got back to probably writing the book i want to write since i've learned new ways of writing through making the film so i'm sure there'll come a point in the future where the influence i've gained from doing this current run of brilliant corners films can feed back into travel writing because my more recent books have been um you know although they've engaged with travel they've been more about surfing communities in the sense of um, surfing in the environment surfing and mindfulness and the movement of travel has always kind of inspired me so that that what I loved in the early days of of becoming someone who was contributing to the magazines writing for car for surfers path for wavelength was trying to kind of embody the the movement of surfing and travel in the writing and I think the experimentation I got to do with my writing definitely has helped with the filmmaking. And the difference with the filmmaking is it's so much more visual and you, 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 you lead these interviews. I interview people and we have these long, languid interviews that you get the opportunity to then edit and, and bring together. Mm. And then the, yeah. the kind of the pastiche and the montage of bringing together the interviews, the, the pieces to camera delivered to the lens, the on-the-fly bits of energy that are just improvised and uh, the um, use of the surfing. It, I definitely do that from the perspective of a writer. And um, I didn't, you know, I studied geography, so it's more places and people and environments that um, I kind of learned about academically. 
but it's that it's definitely the the syntax and the rhythm and the and, and the kind of way things gel together that that the, the writing has given me for the films and um for sure I, I probably call myself still a writer above a filmmaker and this phd that you did surfing haiti and a new wave of travel writing Haiti seems a very important destination for you. It was the first of the initial Brilliant Corners uh, season one, which is available on Amazon Prime, and it opened uh, your first travelogue as well. So, uh, was was Haiti the kind of mitochondrial trip for both your your book projects and your movie making projects? Hundred percent. Yeah, nice phrase, mitochondrial rhizomatic structures like mushroom spores yeah. revolutions yeah. all that kind of imagery i love yeah. all that philosophy stuff but, but haiti i went in 206 when i was working a lot with photographer john callahan our primary out outlet was the surface path at that time we do a lot of stuff for carve as well but generally we would do we would self-fund a shoot um john would photograph i would write we had other surfers who would write in their native languages erwan simon in french Emmy Cataldi in Italian, other surfers would come and go. But a trip to Haiti in 206 just blew my mind for somewhere that was so misrepresented. And I'd always been attracted right. to um, experiencing places and learning for myself what they were really like. And I found somewhere that was heavily written off as, as hostile, complicated, um, environmentally uh, uh, tro troubled, um, politically corrupt. But I found to be Haiti, a country that culturally was very vibrant with art, music, literature, and had this great potential for surf on both the Norths and South coasts. So it became like a kind of, a kind of, uh, almost like a, a perfect storm of, of representations of otherness. And for being interested in human and cultural geography, um, I, I was on a, as soon as I, Got, made the plan to go to Haiti, I got very interested in reading about Haiti's history. And yeah. wave-wise, it just, it just really kind of fired me up. So that led to a number of trips that led to the mad idea of doing a PhD, which if you're not going to be a professor of something, is quite a slog. I did a part-time PhD through Falmouth University. And it's easily, it's harder than, than having kids. You know, doing a PhD is an absolute mind-bending exercise in never having enough time and always feeling as if you, you need to be chipping away at something that you really don't quite understand yet hmm. and what was a joy was Andy Martin was my external examiner for my PhD so that the Viva and the submission proved to be a kind of nice experience but the doing a PhD is hard work but I did do a PhD about exploring the coastline of Haiti and mapping the different surf breaks on both coasts through a number of trips and writing about Haiti. And for sure, that remains a big inspiration for me, just engagement with Haiti, uh, re-representing places, um, uh, the themes of otherness, um, imperialism, slavery, music, um, carnival, all these types of things that, that, that Haiti has. And if anybody out there listening's, you know, feeling like a big adventure, it's you know, it's a it's an exciting place to surf, and now there's a bit more of a grassroots surf scene. So I'm kind of keen to go back, certainly go back there. So it's it's Doctor Sam Bleakley that we should be referring to you as, I suppose. And being an academic, does that fit in well with the surfing lifestyle? It, well, I I did kind of 
try to kind of become an academic at Falmouth University. I took up a, a post as a senior lecturer on a cultural tourism course for a year, thinking that I'm, what am I trying to do, making a living still from surfing? I'm, you know, I'm older now. And actually, <laughs> I, I just realized that it, to do what you love in academia, you have to really work your way up the ladder until you're in a position where you can use your research muscle to do the research you want to do. And that would have taken me a long time where I was still in a position with my surfing life as far as using things like film, mediums like film, commentary, competition, travel, writing, to continue to kind of bridge together all these interesting things that motivated me. So I, I did the year academically and that really helped fast track finishing my PhD. But then I went back to the, to the freelance role and really then got more into pushing the Brilliant Corners films and and also doing more kind of surf event commentary for the longboard tour. But I think there's there's some great surfing academics out there and, and it's a growing community. Jess Ponting in California is a real pioneer of sustainable studying, sustainable tourism. Yeah, you know, I love listening to your podcast with Andy Martin. He was he's a, a lecturer at Cambridge. He was there teaching when I was doing my undergraduate degree and I, you know, get he, I love his work. Um, so I think, like anything, you know, the more variety you have in a community, the better. So, you know, if we've if we've got if surfing encapsulates, you know, academics as well as, you know, hardcore surf industry devotees or professionals, you know, where, where we can all meet. That's a great way of keeping the surf community alive and interesting because nothing worse than things getting stale. You, you want people at the creative edge of anything, um, you know, coming up with new ideas, making things fresh and exciting. There's some really interesting points I'd like to kind of delve, dive a bit further into there. Um, you mentioned kind of juggling your time between academia and, and surfing, and you studied uh, for your undergraduate degree at Pembroke College, Cambridge, whilst competing at a high level in, in longboarding. Was that ch a challenging kind of balancing act? It was, actually. I did consider quitting the degree, and thankfully I didn't because I, w I got a place at Cambridge whilst thinking that my route would probably be uh, either because I, I love A-level um, geography. That's, uh, that was like, I would like to be an A-level geography teacher or maybe work at a university working within probably cultural geography academically. And, and I, I, that was my kind of direction. But then whilst I was at Cambridge, I think the separation from the coast, it was the first time in my life where I'd spent an extended period away from, from the coast. That really fueled my love of surfing. And, and each time I got back to the coast, I was much more hungry. And then I, the competing, although I'd been competing before starting the degree, uh, the success came whilst I was at university. And I had a, there was a period of time where I was getting my boards from, from uh, Chris Griffiths in uh, South Wales. So I really got a lot of inspiration from him at the time as well about about uh, being resilient and tenacious and sticking with things. And I, I kind of found that he was a good, he, he had already become a family man and had a great career comp competitively, but he had launched his shaping career. And I, I, I liked the balance he had. And I could see that I can keep going with my academic studies. I could finish this off. It can lead to more writing and I can keep the surfing going. And he gave me a lot of motivation at that time to kind of stick with it. and then. I was lucky enough to be able to get sponsorship from Oxbow, who were the French brand who were really behind longboarding at that period. 
So when I graduated from Cambridge, I um, was able to kind of smoothly walk into a career with a monthly salary to surf and travel. And it was the, the kind of magazine work that was fueling that. But I kept it quite low key with my with my lecturers at Cambridge because you're not really supposed to be away. But I was away a lot surfing unless you're doing a kind of sport that's recognized within the mm. university system. So I was I was and Andy Martin actually written a nice feature in the Observer Sport Monthly called The Contender, which was like an up and coming athlete that came out just after I'd sat my final exams on the Sunday after the final exam on the Monday. And, uh, and it kind of blew my cover, but it was okay. Cause I'd got through everything <laughs> and it was all about the juggle of being, you know, studying at Cambridge whilst being a European champion and going to these world tour events. And I was lucky to be able to move into a period from 2000 and early 2000s where the surf industry was very buoyant between 2000 and 2010. Uh, there was a lot of funding opportunities for all aspects of surfing from the magazines to photographers, to young professionals, competitions were alive. And, and that was a period of time that, you know, I kind of really took off into the world and started to, I competed, but it was the working with John Callahan and the exploration travel and the, and the features in the magazines that meant photos to fuel your sponsorship, but opportunities to write with really good open-minded editors like Alex Dick Reed and Chris Power, both editors who I'm, you know, they let me flower. Occasionally they rein me in, but a lot of the times, and I feel, feel as if I had, if I had gone in the direction of trying to write travel features for the broadsheet newspapers, that those editors might not have given me the freedom to do experimental things like talk about jazz music and longboarding and, um, and otherness and Haiti. And that was, you know, due respect to the surf media at that time to have editors in powerful positions who could let young writers really experiment. Yeah, it was Alex Dick Reed who gave me my first ever published piece in a surf mag. And I remember there was this kind of generosity in the way that he communicated with me, um, which at the time I didn't realize was very far from standard uh, in the writing world. Uh, and yeah, and you mentioned Chris Power as well, a brilliant editor. And thank goodness for characters like Chris and, and Alex, because nowadays in surf, me, surf media, and I use that, that term in inverted commas, it seems to be the norm, perhaps, that we, we explore links between surfing and other things. Like you mentioned, jazz music and longboarding there. That, it seems to be a, a common theme now, doesn't it? It's, it's not um, an outlier. It's not something bizarre. No, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff happen, happening in, in, you know, all kind of media elements. But I, I still think that, um, you know, you, you can spot the stuff with integrity, you know, that really shines. And, you know, irrespective of the, you know, the explosion of social media and the fact that we see so many incredible short clips of people shredding from the smallest to the oldest, to the biggest waves to the longest barrel. And we see we get a lot of um, access to snappy little pieces online. I still feel as if you can, the, the, the works with integrity, whether they're visual, whether they're films, whether they're written, whether they're a product being made within the surf industry, they, they still shine. And I think there's still, there's still like, um, you know, it, it still favors the surf industry is still, it's a tough world to kind of make a sustainable existence in. And it, and it definitely still favors people. If you really want to stand out, you, you got to do something fresh and different. And, um, uh, I think that that 
I still I, I still get a lot of excitement out of the people who 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 are still printing magazines. And um, I just got the new carve, and you know, great, good job, Steve England. He's been there since 1994 when Orca Publications was founded. He's now at the helm, and um, since, I think since that, that uh, cover with Donovan Frankenreiter doing the floater, I remember it. Yeah, first, and, it, uh, and, and I think those those traditional outlets are are exciting, and I think that um, books, you know, like, I, I still like t- uh, Andy's book on 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 um ted you know i had got the kindle edition and i'm waiting to get the print edition from america and for me the engagement with a surf book is it's you know it's so refreshing i remember being on a boat trip to the maldives with with elliot dudley one of your team and elliot had tom your pre-copy of your first book and it was so exciting for me because i was you know i'm i'm older than you but you we were all for that a new generation of british surf writers and you know that, that I still think that those platforms are great. I love it when people make the effort to maybe not release all of their work, you know, online on blogs, but save it and bring out a book. And you know, the the, the artistry and the energy it takes. I'm really supportive of people who get in touch with me and talk about ideas. I want to write a book and stuff. And I try to often encourage them, you know, to to, to look to the bigger picture, what's the theme, you know, what, what's the contribution to the genre and all of these things that make a book something timeless. Magazines are there for the months, but you want to be able to pick up a book in 10 years and it's still, you know, it's still be something that um, has kind of timeless kind of elements to it. And a name that's cropped up several times throughout our chat this morning, Sam, uh, is friend of the show, Andy Martin, who um, I assume through uh, your, your, um, tutoring you at Cambridge that he's had somewhat of an influence on you would that be fair to say yeah definitely yeah I mean Walking on Water was a book that inspired me when I was younger and it was my introduction to both Randy Rarick and John Callahan who both feature in that book Callahan a Hawaiian born photographer who now lives in Singapore and Randy Rarick a sunset legend and both of those people I spent a lot of time with um, traveling and working with and Andy, for me, just his ability to, you know, I love the, the kind of analogy of surfers as philosophers and philosophers of surf, as surfers. And philosophy isn't a kind of, kind of um, necessarily a, a kind of route that I've got, you know, deeply kind of delved into. But I, I always had this, have this lovely analogy as, as characters, as countries, as characters. And in the same way that you know as a, a young person in the playground who might be bullied or ignored or not noticed you know they were the people i've always been attracted to the people who mm. had a lot more to them and it's the same with 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 countries like algeria that i'm dealing with at the moment the sense of this is a country that that not so many people understand and i love the way that you can bring something as disparate as surfing to understand a country as complicated as algeria and you know, to have the platform with the brilliant corners films to be able to explore those ideas. It's people like Andy Martin who made me realise that surfing could could educate people. You you don't have to just be surfing isn't just about winning world titles or making t shirts or surfboards. There's also a lot we can learn you know, from the, the philosophy of surfing and vice versa. A lot we can pull from other topics and other experiences into surfing. And let's let's talk characters then countries as you put it can we can i ask you a bit about madagascar because that was uh you know we've been been watching the brilliant corners and i found 
the beauty of Madagascar as a surf destination particularly striking. And I think obviously you guys have done a really good job with the cinematography of the place as well. But it looked to me as though there was a real quality of waves in Madagascar. And it looked also as if it was a a genuinely uncrowded place. Uh, Was that the reality of it? Yeah, the southwest of Madagascar has certainly been attracting surf travelers for for a while and and there's grassroots scenes in the southeast and the southwest near Anacao and Fort Dauphin and it's a long way from Antananarivo down to the south and you can fly to both places not so easily with with the burden of longboards because they're on small planes there are some bigger planes but for me the 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 real essence of 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 adventure for me is that the kind of overland journeys and the big lure of Madagascar is that Antananarivo is somewhere that most people just ignore because the airport is just outside. So they come in and perhaps then take a regional flight down to the coast to get some good waves. But the old French architecture of Antananarivo, all in the in the steep hills and all the old French cars that kind of somehow kept alive. I love I love the the resourcefulness. Because, you know, I always think that we should just keep the things we've got working. We don't need to keep getting new surfboards. Get, get a nice quiver and keep it working for as long as possible. Same with vehicles and engines and machines. And you get that resourcefulness in a city like Antananarivo. And then it's a big drive to the coast, which is its own adventure. But th- there's, there's so much discovery. If you really want to go and uh, surf empty waves, you could the whole east and up in the northeast – and even further up the west coast, because you, you think of where Jeffreys Bay is, on the, you know, yeah. in South Africa, Madagascar is just to the east of that corner of South Africa. So all of those roaring forties swells, which are which are striking Durban and up to Port Elizabeth and Jeffreys Bay, they're also hitting both coasts of Madagascar as they move across the Southern Ocean, and it's tropical. It's got you know, you know, a lot of reef passes and long kind of fingers of almost point break like reefs as well as the more slabby spots. Um, so that, yeah, definitely. Uh, but, you know, we, we live in this difficult to glamorize the, the, the travel, isn't it, these days? Because there's this, such a stigma from, the, of course, the, the, the essential environmental angle about having a small carbon footprint. Um, yeah. And for me, I've kind of it's really kind of taken me much more into the human stories about communities and places and the kind of the exotica of of selling perfect waves. I think it it, it works really well when you sur- when people are kind of the, the elite level surfers. But actually, that's not what motivates me. Of course, we all want to surf great waves. And but I'm I'm actually it's those grassroots surf communities who don't get a voice in the in in the media platforms and and those those kind of people who've who've sacrificed everything to 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 run a small surf camp in in a remote yeah. place I, I love those types of human stories and if if the weight of course i'll try to do the shoots during the seasons when there's a good chance you'll get decent surf we did get some some pretty fruity surf in madagascar um so that was that was a bonus but it's for certainly not the, the the wave quality isn't the big pull for me it's the kind of grassroots right. kind of surf communities but yeah definitely madagascar 10 out of 10 for for waves and you you mentioned that um i think you said it was the southwest of madagascar has had for some time um surf tourism if you will 
but lots of the the places you you kind of document in your in the the series of films uh, seem to be in their kind of early stages um of development as surfing nations and uh, one place that we found really interesting was india and what what prompted that trip why india of all places well again india is so big and complicated it's impossible to kind of showcase india in one project so i kind of try to outwardly tell the viewer that this isn't this isn't everything you need to know so we focused on kerala and i had every film i've made is off the back of previous projects getting to know the place having a link having some stories perhaps they might have been from traveling with john callahan and uh writing about a place and and staying in touch with a small community or a single person with india my the evolution of my kind of appreciation of the place came from doing a annual bit of work with the surf and yoga retreat called soul and surf that's based in uh, varkla in kerala and our four different trips some of which were my family which was a great experience i got to know the the, the surf scene in varkla so i really felt like my, my the india film was about giving them a voice uh, uh, and and the east coast of india is where the best waves are like sri lanka it has the two seasons the different monsoons and the the west coast of india has a surf season from november to to may and the east coast has a surf season from may to october and kerala it's mostly quick beach breaks. The waves are snappy and tight to shore, a little bit awkward, but it can be fun. But the Varkala surf scene was a story that hadn't been shared. So honing in on some of those youngsters who worked at the surf and yoga retreat and what they are learning about the world through the, this international kind of place and their grassroots surf scene. For me, it seemed to kind of tell a nice, bigger story of, of India, re-representing elements of of Indian society, which as a British person with the, with the, um, the history of colonialism and partition of India, you know, that's a huge uh, impact we as our ancestors as British imperialists had on India that we don't learn at school when we should learn mm. in the same that the Black Lives Matter movement has reminded us how much more we should be learning about the legacy of slavery. As British students, we should be learning more about the partition of India, which divided India into uh, Bangladesh and Pakistan and India and caused you know, a huge movement of people and was extremely disruptive. So I think as, as a writer, engaging with India is seriously dangerous territory. So I, I, I was really careful to not trip myself up. A lot of people aren't going to criticise certain kind of representations in the surf media, but I want my work to be um, engaged with beyond the surf media. So I really wanted to kind of capture something that was exciting and fresh for kind of Indian identity, these young skateboarders um, in Kovalam, these young surfers in Varkala. And at the same time, I didn't want to do something that just sounded like this white guy steaming in and kind of, kind of projecting his own worldview on a country that in the past you know, his ancestors might have had a bad impact on. So it was very, it was a tricky one, India. To and But I did, I did feel that I got a really good positive reaction from the local Indian surfers. And that, the most important thing is when the films come out, if the messages come through from perhaps the Senegalese surfers or the Malagasy surfers or the Indian surfers, 
or the Papua New Guinean surfers in pride of what they've seen, that for me is job done. And then I'm happy to move on to the next thing because it's giving them a voice that they don't normally get on the platforms. There's not often you open Surfer magazine and see their their voice shared. So but that's it. India, despite having an enormous coastline, and as you said, two distinct seasons for surfing, depending on which coast you're on, isn't the, the place that first springs to mind when you think of a surfing destination. My, I think my dad did a, a, tri- a surf trip to India in the late seventies, and of course, back then there were—I mean, there was no one surfing, um, apart from him and whoever he was with. But has the—I mean, nowadays, as sh- documented in your film, again, there's there is somewhat of a, a scene there. And given the the enormous population, would you say that India is kind of poised to be a great surfing nation at some point in the future? That's a great question. I would say it, it, it is. Yeah, I, I feel as if if you look at the quality of surfing that's coming out of Sri Lanka, it's the coast is not as convoluted. That's the difference. Sri Lanka is this little bit of a gemstone in the sense that it's got this highly convoluted coast on both sides. And you've got those long right point breaks around Aragon Bay. And then you've got Hikadua, Midagama, those areas that have got all of those reef passes and the the west coast of india it is very straight it's cliffed with beaches and in a deep shelf into the indian ocean and the everything comes at an acute angle and snappy and quick and tight to shore so on the west coast the waves are very quick uh beach breaks that are kind of brutal for kind of in fact i actually fractured my back surfing in the shore break in kerala a number of years ago but the east coast has got the point breaks and i feel as if we haven't quite they haven't quite been documented in, in uh, their best yet so i think a lot of the, the global surf community hasn't quite seen india at its best visually and through um film but i'd love to let the indian surfers do that if they can lead that and if they can be the gatekeepers to decide how do we showcase our coast because they've got a thriving surf scene and I think that's some of the messages with the brilliant corners films. I'm always trying to strike this balance of of empowering the local community to be the people who lead the way their story is told, whilst laying a few messages to try and inspire them to say that you 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 you've got this. This is yours. This is your place. You you know you you can be really leaders in your community about how you how you manage this coastline, how you work with the fishing communities that need for food, how you work with sustainable small scale tourism. You know what? You know how? You know how you welcome outsiders because we want we want places to stay um, authentic and we want the environment to be managed. We don't want to kind of flood places. But it, I I got a real I'm not a massive fan of the philosophy of aid of going to places and giving free surfboards and giving stuff that people can't manage. I'd rather tell stories that empower communities to make their own equipment. I'd rather see people sourcing equipment to make boards from that they know they can find and they can fix and they can manage rather than being the type of person who fundraises a huge container of mass produced equipment that can't be managed well within a kind of emerging surf community. So it's kind of like laying these seeds and these ideas that hopefully uh, some of the local surfers kind of take forward. It's it's really interesting hearing the, the kind of... Uh motivation behind these projects sam and and conducting them in such a sustainable and i suppose noble way and 
These projects, of course, have been taken up by WSL Studios, as we mentioned earlier, which is, of course, an incredible opportunity. How did that come about? So the second season, the first season was Haiti, Jamaica, Barbados, Liberia, China, that French company called Extreme Video distributed. And that you can watch that on Amazon Prime. And then I did the second season funded by The Wave Bristol. And Nick Hounsfield, the founder of The Wave, was someone I'd been working with writing content for their original kind of platform of blogs and Instagram and Facebook. And he, he loved the old, the original season of, of films and him and um, his team funded that second season. But when it came to the, th- and that was on Mauritania, Senegal, sorry, Mauritania, Sierra Leone, Ghana, Philippines, and Oman. And I would have loved to have continued to work with them, but of course they were very much focusing on building the the wave, which um, is reopening at the moment. So that's exciting. And of course, they got the London project as well. So clearly that's where all of their energy and funding needed to go. And I was actually just exploring um, funding avenues. And as someone who'd, you know, had a chance to to stick with the academic role, I needed to continue to make a living. So I was exploring ways of pitching to, to get funding. And as a local surfboard um, company called Innovisions in down here in Cornwall. They've it was a great surf shop in the seventies, eighties, and early nineties, based in St Ives and Penzance. Um, that, that that then kind of closed its doors, and some local surfers in my area have reformed the brand. And one of them, a lovely man called John Bennett, comes from a kind of medical health background, and he he had the opportunity to support the films and it ended up being a bridging ground where I got the I got the new season rolling shooting and in that time the WSL got in touch because they were looking to diversify Eric Logan had um, been hired and he ca- comes from a media background as originally the for the CEO of the Oprah Winfrey network in America so he comes from a background of of um, media and him and some of his crew had seen some of the brilliant corners films and they were looking to support some of these more creative cultural projects around surf communities and they were very interested in the the grassroots surf scenes and and so they so we started talking and then they ended up um kind of taking over the project and it, it allowed some additional funding and, and a more of a structure and and that was fantastic because they appointed a really wonderful producer called Camille who works full-time for the World Surf League, often working with the shortboard webcasts, but she comes from a documentary production background. And immediately there was a really good alchemy with her. And when we started doing the post-production of the first episodes on Haiti, on Madagascar, sorry, there was a, a, a real celebration of the cultural elements, but also this great guidance about making things more digestible and more accessible and but still giving me the freedom to explore some complicated ideas and then we had a some motion budget for the motion graphics so everything started to kind of become more professional we developed a bit more of a slick streamlined format and and that's the relationship I'm still in and we've got a new season ahead beyond finishing the the film I'm editing at the moment on Algeria we've done Madagascar Papua New Guinea, India, Senegal, Algeria is coming next. And then we've got another season to shoot and 
still I'm doing this on a small budget and it's a labor of love, but it's just getting me by. It's become pretty much my full-time role. And the big, the, the big relationship for me is my relationship with Robin Simpson, who I edit with locally in St. Just near Senon. And he has a editing suite there. And we, we literally spend, you know, months and months and months together doing, doing the edits of each episode. So that, that's the most important relationship in the project is my relationship with Robin, because he drives the editing software and I direct the project in, in the sense we've shot the film. I've directed with a cameraman. I've written the script. I've brought together the story. Uh, I study the material and then I'm directing the editing and he, he loves driving the editing software and he's an absolute master at all of the necessary things like the file management, the, the kind of shortcuts, the pace, the, the kind of backing things up, the exporting and uploading and, and the grading and all these elements. And that, that, that relationship for me is the most important one and, it, and, it, and I have to keep that strong and positive and, and, and thankfully we do. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a small team, but I'm by no means the, the most important person in it. It's, Camille is extremely um, important as the producer and Robin as the editor and the cameramen, commonly Greg Dennis from Cornwall or Luke Pillbeam or, um, of, of sh- or an Australian called Misha Rob Mass. They have shot shows and the surfers who have joined us and the local surfers and all of these kind of surf community trusts that you build and and that takes that that for me has taken a kind of a longer life devoted to this it's it's the trust i've built with the surf communities and the places from visiting before maybe publishing a feature and them letting me in and also traveling with a small crew not having we don't have a sound man we just me and the cameraman film everything um and do everything we often use two cameras manned independently because we haven't got a spare camera person and having the right people with you so that you're light footed and you travel as you would as a writer, but it's impossible to travel as a writer, which is my goal because you just like you're in, you, you've just got your pen and your paper, maybe even a pencil, which is, which is a bit more sustainable than a plastic pen, but that's great. That light footedness of a writer is, is what I always aspire to achieve as a filmmaker, which you can't because you've got, you've got a big plastic object that needs electricity and you've got to back things up and you've got lenses and a little drone if you can sneak one into the country. So you've got this other juggle of kit. So you're obviously like doing something, but the art of it is to um, be welcomed and have that trust and let people and allow people to let you in and, and then know that you're not doing them over, that you're doing something that they're going to be proud of and sharing that with them keeping the dialogue alive, you know, as you're editing, keeping, letting them know, you know, is it okay if we use this phrase from you, you know, and that kind of thing. So it's a, it's a big, it's bringing together kind of like a little community of things in in each project. And, um, you know, it does take over and you find that your head is in that country. So when the lockdown happened, I was editing Senegal. So all of this political pan, this political, social and health, um, issue and i'm there just still living in senegal and that's the creative kind of kind of challenge you face as any anybody who does anything it's very much the the condition of the travel writer that that you describe there that's very interesting um you know that that attempt to sort of immerse yourself in the community so that you can actually get the right 
version of the community to to represent uh, in your project now the episode for for which that uh, description is most apposite in my opinion is the papua new guinea one uh, amazing waves in papua new guinea by the way but you were saying that you know it's not just about the waves it does help that they've got a a wave that does like a kind of a mini impersonation of nias there haven't they but what amazing people um just looked like an incredible um project that one did yeah the what great themes to learn from and it doesn't matter whether you're a surfer on the gold coast or a surfer at Porth call or a surfer at saunton sands there's topics there there's the empowerment of women through what they call the pink nose revolution in a in there's some areas are more matriarchal some are more patriarchal but in the more male dominated communities painting half of the surfboards with pink noses has prevented the men from wanting to you to to use the boards that no way that would happen in south wales of course all the guys <laughs> would be proud greg owen would be oh, yeah, straight out rob there and elliot the... would be straight out there as well yeah <laughs> yeah so the, the, the that's absolutely unique to the location but it, it it's a symbol of of accessibility of equipment of a balanced lineup and we all know how you know important it is to you know to to, to allow equal access to surfing and then the use the the kind of revival of the wood board culture and the fact that like all polynesia papua new guinea's got this rich history of wave riding a lot of kids used to just if they were getting bed bugs on their wooden board bed they'd go for a surf just to wash the bed bugs off the wood board and they would ride what they call the palangs and just just you know ride them prone and the history of all polynesian wave riding of course the the hawaii was the kind of golden territory of environmentally it just had the perfect combination of, of of surf breaks to allow surfing to flower in a complex way but papua new guinea has that lovely legacy and some inspiration of of you know proud locals and outsiders like brian bates nick winichuk tom wegner have reminded some of the emerging scenes that the woodboard culture is something you can revive and you can access this locally grown balsa, although it's a South American tree balsa, but it grows well in, in Polynesia and Melanesia. And the, the surf tourism model for me was the winner because the way that as the surf tourism have emerged, um, Andrew Abel, who runs the, the, the national organization, made it legislation to run the surf camps in this with this particular model of of employment empowerment of locals who own the land and the fringing reefs therefore you need permission to get access to the water and the surf spots and the way that numbers are capped and income is spread into the community so from wave pools emerging around the world to busy surf breaks the the idea of carrying capacity is so it's the big thing we've got to deal with in surfing because when does an experience become unpleasurable because it's too busy? Yeah. We don't want to bar. We we all love surfing and we know how uh, attractive it is and how powerful it is therapeutically for all levels of of, of you know existence. But of course, it's it, it's it's not pleasant when it's crowded and people are behaving badly. So how do we manage? When is a break breached its carrying capacity? And they, yeah. they kind of do they do that with some ski resorts and. And they do that with with again, climbing areas, and of course, at a wave park, you wouldn't let more people in than no, could fit. Yeah. But the, the, it's mm. a great it's a great way of learning about these things. And 
of course, I don't know the answers to the carrying capacity idea, but it's something as a surf community, management of our coastlines, access to our surf breaks, and how we kind of work that balance between allowing people to surf but not allowing surfing to become unpleasurable. That's like, and it, of all places, Papua New Guinea, I learned yeah. more from that than I have done going to, to the Gold Coast or California and seeing surf breaks and, that have got a longer history. So in light of those comments then, do you think it was a, a, a good move by the WSL um, to hold the World Longboard Champs there? Because that was part of um, the first episode there, you know, the, the, and they set up this little camp, didn't they? You know, and all the competitors had to sort of stay in tents. And it had a lovely grassroots feel. And the wave, I'm assuming, must have been pretty, it must have been pretty difficult to get a set wave during some of the sort of training freezes before that comp. Good move by the WSL, though, to sort of, you know, bring that, um, well, what would, I, what would I call it? That's, well, I, I suppose it's, it's that kind of idea of inviting communities to sort of look after and manage their own growth into, into becoming a surf destination. Um, yeah, y- your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, it was more a locally driven move. So it was more the vision of Andrew Abel and, right. and some of his crew to have a, a celebration of what was happening in, in Papua New Guinea and give it a big platform. And it very remote area, near impossible to do the, the live stream. And um, I think it was a, a good move. And, you know, unfortunately, it was a one-off. It's not kind of evolved into a... Um, into a kind of annual event, which I think, you know, if the funding was there, that would have been the vision of the, the Papua New Guinean um, kind of surf organization. But the I think that when you have a new event at a remote place, if there's already a structure in place in the country to cope with a new attention, it is great. If there's not, then that's a problem. If you put a world-class wave on the map and you suddenly get a flood of visitors and there's no um, there's no infrastructure in place to host those visitors and no leadership to determine if the locals want those visitors. That's a problem. But Papua New Guinea already had a network of sustainably managed surf camps in place that capped the numbers. So if that did become an annual event, say, for example, it was a CT event and overnight you had a, a flood of bookings of people wanting to travel to these different spots, only a small number per week would be allowed to come and, and they would be contributing in a good way to the local community. So in that case, I think it was great. But if you were to do an event um, in an equally good way without um, locally driven vision for how they would host a, a flood of visitors, that, that's when it can be a problem. Right. Interesting. Uh, with regards to the WSL, Sam, you, of course, are the voice of many of these uh, longboarding events, certainly. And it seems to Tom and I like somewhat of uh, the, the dream gig, so to speak. It's the, the whole kind of motivation behind the crest cast, trying to get on, trying to muscle in on that action. Yeah, it's our audition, this is. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very <laughs> long-winded audition tape. Well, I think you guys are doing a great job. And I think, you know, the, the, this great, the webcasts are becoming a big element of all levels of competition. I've, you guys have already done them for British events. Yeah. And, and, you know, that will evolve if you want it to. And I think that as a former competitor, I've always had a passion and appreciation for competition surfing. I watch a, a lot of shortboard events uh, and I, 
the, the, for me, the big thing that fires me up in longboarding is, is women's longboarding. The, the new movement of graceful women's longboarding is so refreshing. And it's, a, it's great. You know, I, I love sport. I grew up, like you probably did, listening to cricket, rugby, football. I think that sports commentary it, it is, is incredible. Uh, you know, f- for me, listening to Radio 5 live sports commentary, any live sport, that's where I get my inspiration for surf commentary. Unfortunately, as a, as a lone Brit in that world, um, you, you, you can't necessarily go to town in that direction. You have to kind of broaden your your kind of language to appeal as much to the Australian and American and European audience. But it, it's, it's, it's great. And you sit there watching, a, you know, all day of, of surfing and you've got to got to do your research you've got to know the riders you've got to have a bit of passion and like you experienced doing this webcast you've got to deal with the realities of media things break things go wrong and longboarding still the kind of smaller funded element of of surfing i love that it's the grass it's the more grassroots thing we're often you know in a a difficult situation doing the the broadcast under challenging conditions i think i saw you you under a team together i think i saw you under the the tailgate of a van in noosa was it in the rain exactly yeah that was brilliant and it was it was all because we'd moved there was no waves at first point so we'd moved to the to the groins and uh you know they're running the cable down to the broadcast cameras and up to the caravan that was doing the webcast and there's no room in the caravan to fit the commentator, so we're outside being bitten by mosquitoes. Brilliant. There's a tropical downpour, and it, this is this is the joy of it. Is the and I'm really really excited to still have access to surf competition. Yeah. I love the thought of uh, you having to kind of temper temper your your commentary to accommodate the Australian and American listeners. I, I fear that Tom and I would perhaps bring too much of a test match special vibe to uh, WSL. Well, I think still cricket is the kind of like the kind of it's the, goal, the, the arm, pinnacle, arm, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's also the, lying on a beach listening to the test match special. I did it all last week against the West. The use of space. I think that the art of cricket commentary is the, is, is the way they use space. And I think that surf commentary can gain a lot from that because yeah. you have a lot of air and space and the art of riding that out. Yeah. Is, is definitely something that yeah maybe we should set up this kind of training camp for aspiring surf commentators and they have <laughs> to brilliant listen idea. to kind of iconic test match well, that's, commentary it, it's, it's all about um the, the the things that are happening beyond the sport that make the yes. brilliant commentary so it is so brilliant the test match special i think in the the second test when they they moved to old trafford uh from from the rose bowl in, down in southampton they had like a 10 to 15 minute discussion about trams coming and going outside of the stadium and Agas is Agas favorite pubs in greater Manchester. And it was so much more interesting than the sport. And I I love cricket, but that's what you listen for, isn't it? Well, Tom, it sounds like you were going to say something then. I'll let you, did you? Oh no, you you go first. I I could talk all day on this topic. What, what is a real joy is um, working with Wingnut, who of course, one of the great longboarders and, um, Wingnut's not always available to do the longboard events, but we have had a lot of fun. Often we get separated because we're both, um, you know, got the background of being in front of camera as longboarders. So we'll we'll often put not necessarily on the same heat together. But there was actually a really hilarious heat we did in Taiwan at the World Longboard Titles a number of years ago, where we were. It was a really kind of like 
middle of the event. Nobody was probably tuning in. The waves weren't great, but Adam Griffiths was against Tony Silvani, Adam of Brit, Tony American, Wingnut American, me British. And so we, we took on this kind of persona of the Brit v. the, the American. And uh, I kind of obviously was on Adam's side and Wingnut was on Tony's side. And we actually brought in an analogy of it being a game of chess. And Wingnut's very sharp and quick thinking. And uh, that that's you can you could find that on YouTube that heat uh, from the Taiwan I think it was a 2017 and I'd say that's probably one of my high points of surf event commentary is this particular heat with Wingnut and uh, Tony Silvani and Adam Griffiths and the opportunity to really kind of like you can't always do that because the producer in your ear will tone it down depending on the level of the event but if yeah. you get some sometimes if things are kind of pretty small scale you can go on a roll but generally if it if you know you've got a bigger production team of course there's rules and you've got to you know be impartial and and you've got to kind of lead into the ad breaks and keep things fresh and snappy but um you know sometimes you do get the opportunity to go go crazy and that that's fun i was just going to say about commentating on other sports um actually i think a bizarre experience i had um a friend, I love all sports as well. And, and for some reason, I found myself involved in American sports quite a lot. And so uh, a friend of mine who I played basketball with, Nathan Merchant, and I went up to watch the NFL in London. And I made a mis- just a straight up calendar mistake. And I clashed the NFL with Wales's big Euros qualifier against Croatia. Um, and I'm a season ticket holder for Wales. So I was supposed to be in the Croatia game. But also I had NFL London and I I just in the end, for some reason, I ended up going on the NFL London trip. But it meant that as we drove home, I was watching the Croatia game on Sky Sports on my phone while Nathan drove. And because we were in England, we couldn't get Radio Wales. So I commentated (laughs) Wales's game against Croatia for a one man audience all the way down the M4, all the way back to Wales. It's really hard to commentate on a sport in which the action never stops. I found it really, really hard. But at the end of it, he said, God, you know, he said like that, that was fine. He said, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd take you over uh, most of the, obviously we have Rob Phillips here in Wales, who is the best comments, football commentator. But at the end of it, I was really buzzing and thinking like, yeah, commentating, just commentating on all sports is just an absolute blast. Yeah. And you, you, you get into that kind of breathing pattern where you can talk, for long runs but it, it yeah. is it is absolutely terrifying if you in a team and somebody's you know for an emergency has got to leave the room and you've got a whole court for, for a long <laughs> oh, period of time oh, yeah. it, it, if you can bounce off somebody it's so much easier i actually you're not all you don't always get the license to do this when they have a bit of a structure when when you have a big production team with with um, what they call play-by-play in colour, the person who is describing the action and the person that's analysing the action. And essentially the colour person will be an ex-world champion or competitor right. and play-by-play okay. will be yeah. the Ronnie Blakey host who, who yeah. brings you in, takes you to the commercial break, brings you back, yeah. reds up, takes off, describes the action. And you, you do often have to stick to that formula depending on the production team you're working with. Right. And um, what, for me, something I love is the describing the live action when someone's riding putting words to the moments and some viewers listeners don't want that but the way that a uh, sports commentator on motor racing or horse riding can just go into acceleration mode and you get that with cricket you get the the cool moments and then the action and the 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 pace is quicker 
And that for me is the most inspiring part because you're really living and breathing the moment. You're, you're out there on the nose with whoever it is, Kaliam Moniz hanging 10 yeah. on a fast section at Haliva, wherever it might be. And those kind of flurries of, of detailed description is that's that that's you know as close to being out there in the water actually doing the surfing so and that definitely yeah. i think i think for all co commentators you 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 kind of want to have a passion for other sports because you need to constantly be getting inspired by listening to whether it's the nfl whether it's basketball whether it's ice hockey whatever it might be for me it's mostly cricket rugby and football there i'm a huge um fan of all of all three of those sports and i regularly follow all of them and and it's that those that you know they they kind of keep me motivated yeah. about surf commentary now speaking of all sports and football algeria big sporting nation responsible for one of wales's least favorite football stars he's very popular in italy because of that wonderful iconic moment zinedine zidane we hate him in wales because he doesn't get on with gareth bale who is like literally you know the actual uh, the unofficial prince of wales no the official prince of wales gareth bale is Algeria, though, that's the next episode in Brilliant Corners, isn't it? What date's that out? That's out 22nd of September. Three episodes, episode one out that day, and then the next two weeks you'll see episodes two and three. And Brilliant. With travel in mind, Sam, how do you see the, the post-COVID surf travel scene shaping up? Can, can the communities um, that, you, that you visit in uh, the Brilliant Corners kind of pick themselves up from what I imagine is quite a, a, a tough time for them. Will surfing travel be the same again? Should we travel? I think we're entering a completely new era of surf travel in the same way that 9-11 was a very defining period of, of global travel. And it's unknown. And I think grassroots surf communities with sustainable surf tourism are worth supporting. And for me, I'm really excited about finishing this Algeria edit and moving on to the next planning of a new shoot because it's it's going to be really challenging and extremely adventurous and it's going to take a lot of awareness of the impact that you have and I think that it's a new era and certainly it's going to affect surf competition it's going to affect the kind of more mass travel but I think that the the motivations for travel need to really be bulletproof and it will make people more aware of traveling for the right reasons and choosing a trip that really means something to them and the place that they're going and their themes that I really want to explore in the next you know, round of Brilliant Corners films. So for me, the bigger the challenge, the bigger the hurdle, the more motivated I am to kind of give something, give a new angle that really opens people's minds oh fabulous stuff sam yeah i think that uh, that is the way for all of us to pick ourselves up as a global surf community there is that that idea of the sort of you know the the bigger the hurdle um the the more rewarding it's going to be when as a surfing community we come to a solution um yeah and you're you're definitely doing your bit uh, in that light, Sam. So, uh, you know, on behalf of the surfing community, I'd like to thank you for that. Now, let's just be nice and clear for the listeners. How do they look at Brilliant Corners to stream it? So if you search WSL Brilliant Corners, you will go directly to the links on the WSL page. Some things are on YouTube like Madagascar, but generally right. it's only the WSL website and app 
that you can yeah. watch the episodes and that WSL Brilliant Corners combination will find it on any search. Brilliant. And I can't recommend it enough, guys. The aesthetics, the waves, the music, the writing. It's a great project, Sam. So on behalf of Crest as well, I'd like to congratulate you on it. And uh, we'll look forward greatly to that next installment. Thanks for having me. Always been inspired by all the Welsh crew. I wish I got to see them more. And I love what you're doing and, and keep the Welsh vibe alive. Can I also speak on behalf of Crest in thanking you, Sam, for coming on to talk uh, to us. It's been enlightening and refreshing, I think, also to hear about the the motivations behind your travel and behind uh, making these these documentaries. Because certainly pre-COVID, if I can use that term, travel became... Um, it was the norm, wasn't it? You just you, it, you didn't think twice bef- before going somewhere or booking your flights. And it's it's nice to hear that there's kind of a deeper uh, a deeper thought behind what what you're doing with regards to that. Um, and of course, thanks to our listeners. Now, as for our next instalment, which is going to be another very interesting interview. Firstly, a reminder of how to access it. Our podcasts are there every Monday until November through YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And we're on Instagram too, and can be emailed at castcrest at gmail.com. So do share your thoughts on anything um, that you hear. And of course, make sure that you've hit on that all-important subscribe button. And after Brilliant Corners has offered us some pertinent reminders of the sheer beauty which can be found on this planet's coasts, next week we'll be talking about the importance and future of the sea itself with Dr. Cynthia Sosdian of Cardiff University's School of Earth and Ocean Sciences. The New Jersey-raised ripper, now of Lantwit Major, will tell us how she chose to change the hurricane-swell-laden US East Coast for Wales's own Channel Coast. And we'll also learn of the various wisdoms she's gleaned from a life of studying both what's above and below the waves we all love to ride. Keep an eye out for it next Monday morning as usual. Until then, thanks and see you next time. Cheers, Em. Thanks for listening.